This week on Science for the People, we're talking about the latest threat to your orange juice. We're talking with plant virologist Anne Simon about what she's doing to combat citrus greening. But first, we'll speak with science writer Marin McKenna about why dumping loads of antibiotics on the orange groves of Florida might not be the best idea. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Today, just for a second, I want you to think about breakfast. Classic breakfast. Like in the movies. What's there? Well, there might be cereal, eggs, toast, coffee. But the one thing you see in all the commercials and shows that makes it clear you're looking at breakfast, not lunch or dinner. What is it? It's orange juice. Even if you never drink it, you know that orange juice is just a thing that is found on breakfast tables. Oranges, grapefruits, clementines, and more are everywhere. They flavor our cocktails and our smoothies. They feed kids during sports and adults for dessert. And of course, they grace our breakfast tables. But these bright, cheerful fruits are facing an enemy, one that many people have probably never heard of. It's called citrus greening, and it's far more than just a few sad green grapefruit. It is so bad that scientists worry if it's not controlled, citrus greening could take all the orange juice off our breakfast tables for good. But what is it? And how do we fight it off? Here to talk about it is Marin McKenna, science journalist and author and a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University, who has written on citrus greening and some of the efforts that farmers are making to combat it. Welcome, Marin. Thank you for having me. And you come to this topic naturally, right? You are a big citrus fan. I am, in fact. When in, you know, around Christmas time, when those crates of the little, little tiny tangerines come out in the market, I instantly buy them and I usually can be found sort of behind a wall made of those crates packed together with empty tangerine peels. I love them so. <laughs> Have you ever so had them starting- dipped in dark chocolate? Because you can do that, you know. Ooh, yeah, but you have to, you have to like candy them first. It's complicated. I'd rather just eat them. So, so the story is personal to me because it really does threaten significant amounts of the citrus that we grow in the United States and no one has figured out an answer yet. Now, citrus greening is called Wang Long Bing, which I think is the correct pronunciation in Chinese. What is citrus greening? Like, I think of things that are just kind of green. I think, you know, like green oranges. What, what is citrus greening? What does it do? So in fact, greening oranges or oranges not becoming orange colored is part of the problem. What's citrus greening is a bacterial disease of the trees that bear citrus fruit. And what that bacterium does is to infect the vascular tissue the the tree's circulatory system that lies in a layer underneath the bark that we see. And it impedes uh, the the flow of fluid and the transport of oxygen and nutrients. And the result is that fruit becomes, it never gets beyond a small stage. It can be misshapen. It can never become the colors that we expect. And then there are also other effects like trees dropping their leaves or trees not budding out properly. And eventually, and it takes quite a while, the trees die. And this has happened to more than 90% of the citrus orchards in the state of Florida, where citrus greening, Wang Wang Bing, arrived roughly two decades ago. 
Now, you mentioned that it gets there in the... Does it basically come in and, like, block the tree's arteries? Is that <laughs> sort of what's going on? The way we can think of it is kind of like, you know, arterial inflammation or like atherosclerosis. It's, it's transmitted to the trees by an insect, uh, the Asian citrus psyllid. Psyllid starts with a P. The P is silent. And the, the challenge in combating this disease is that the vascular tissue of the tree is a thing that's very difficult to get to because it's well protected within the bark. And so there, there's a limited number of sort of portals in the tree where you can get a treatment that will knock out the bacterium. So it's very interesting to me because this is caused by a bacterium that's carried by this insect, this psyllid. But I don't, I don't think personally of plants suffering from bacterial infections like, like animals or people do. <laughs> you know, I think of them as suffering from, I guess, funguses or right, that's right. weeds <laughs> or bugs. I mean, are, are bacterial infections common like this? So I don't, I don't know what the marker for common would be. I think it's, it's absolutely correct that fungi and fungal diseases are the primary threat to what we think of as food crops, whether that's grains or fruit or vegetables produce. But bacterial diseases actually are very significant in certain crops. And the ones that are most familiar to us are apples and pears or poem fruits generally. There is a bacterium, Erwinia, that causes a disease that is popularly known as fire blight that has kind of similar effects on apple and pear trees that citrus greening does in citrus trees, allowing for the fact that they're different organisms, which is that it, it affects the tree and it, cause, it, it affects the production of the fruit. And just as is the case with citrus greening, the primary means of controlling Erwinia fire blight in apples and pears has been the thing that we use to combat bacterial diseases, which is antibiotics. And that is why I wanted to have you on the podcast today, because you wrote a piece on citrus greening for nature, um, specifically about something that people are trying to do about it. The United States Environmental Protection Agency has approved spraying. And I was really surprised by this because when we think of spraying of crops, we usually think pesticides. But no, they are spraying antibiotics to try and fight citrus greening. How is that supposed to work? You mentioned that the bacterium kind of comes up through the tree's xylem and phloem and, you know, gets in its veins. Um, how, how is spraying antibiotics supposed to help? So the reason I'm hesitating is that I don't, I am not convinced that anyone is sure. That is to say that the way this has proceeded to date has been that people have perceived that there is a bacterial disease. They know that the appropriate response to controlling a bacterial disease is to deploy antibiotics. And so they have brought antibiotics into the citrus orchard, for which there is some precedent because, as I said, apple and pear crops have been protected from this disease or winnie fire blight for decades now with applications of antibiotics. The problem is that the proposed and approved by the FDA application of antibiotics in the citrus orchards of Florida is going to be 
very, very much larger than has ever been used in apple and pear crops. And citrus, citrus greening is occurring in different plants with different texture and finish on their leaves in different ecosystems. The, any experience that's been gained with the relatively small applications of antibiotics in apples and pears in other parts of the country has very little to say about what might happen in the citrus grove with hundreds of thousands of kilograms of antibiotics being deployed with big, big sprayers mounted on the backs of trucks. And it's precisely the, it's the volume and also the application methods of spraying that has environmental advocates very nervous. Yeah, so... You mentioned it in the Nature article, it's a potentially 440,000 kilograms of antibiotics raining down on the state of Florida. Which antibiotics ended up getting approved and are those important? So just for people who don't think very naturally in metric, which includes me, that is almost 975,000 pounds of drug per year. I'll admit I don't think very clearly when dealing with numbers that large, just in right, general. Right. So let's say roughly almost a million pounds rounding up of two antibiotics, two legacy antibiotics, streptomycin and oxytetracycline, which is one of the earliest members of the tetracycline class of antibiotics, are going to be allowed to be sprayed on citrus groves by the FDA. The FDA granted final approval for one of these drugs in about December, and it is now finalizing approval for the other drug because each approval has to be for a particular drug. It can, it's not, it's not that citrus growing goes to the EPA and says, let us do this as an action. You have to do it by drug. They've been able to supply that to apply the drugs for about three years now because the first emergency plea to the FDA to apply these antibiotics in this manner on the citrus groves was in 2016. And so the EPA granted emergency approvals in 2016, 2017, 2018, and now at the, at the end of 2018 and in the, in 2019 in the growing season, this has now been approved as a routine practice that can take place year after year after year without further applications being filed. So they actually, put in an emergency request begging to apply these antibiotics three years ago. Is that right? That's right. And, and they, they got were approved it. to do that. Is it, is it working? Well, <laughs> that, that kind of depends on who you talk to. I don't, I have not spoken to anyone in Florida who thinks that this has been a slam dunk silver bullet solution. They do in some cases think that the application of antibiotics to infected trees is slowing down the progression of the disease. And what that means is that growers may be able to get one or several more seasons out of their groves before the trees die, because trees that are infected with citrus greening inevitably die. And as I said earlier, large amounts of acreage devoted to citrus in Florida already have effectively been taken out of production because the trees were infected, the trees died, and that they're considered in a way sort of no-go areas. They can't be replanted because of a concern that the disease might recur. That's tragic. It is tragic. I mean, it's important to, as, as, as alarming as this broad use of antibiotics is, and there's, there's good reason to consider it alarming. 
it, it's really important to keep in mind that the citrus growers are really desperate. The, the entire citrus industry of Florida, which is kind of defined, um, citrus for the United States, California is our other citrus growing region. But when we think of things like that morning orange juice on the breakfast table, all of that came out of the Florida citrus industry selling itself to the the, uh, the upper Atlantic coast. Yeah. I mean, so, to be real, nobody drinks California orange juice. You drink Florida orange juice. Exactly. That, that's what it's you drink. Like Florida orange juice is, it is known. kind of embedded in our consciousness because it's been, you know, it's been a, a thing in advertising since, I don't know, probably the 1950s. So people are getting a few years, a few extra years out of their trees. Um, but it's not really, you know, kind of, you know, usually when we think of taking antibiotics, we take an antibiotic pill for like a week and it just knocks our infection out completely. It's not doing that. Do we know why it's not doing that? Why it's just buying time? So a problem with all of this is that there isn't actually very good science about applying antibiotics to citrus trees. That's partly because when they are used in the agricultural space, antibiotics aren't even actually called antibiotics. They're called biocides. And they're being used as, effectively as sort of like pesticides to protect against a plant disease. The only, there is no publicly available, published in a, a peer-reviewed journal, peer-reviewed, you know, sort of experimentally proven science around this. What there are, are field trial tests conducted by the manufacturers of the biocide, that is, the people who make these antibiotics for the agricultural industry, as opposed to the people who make them and put them into pills for humans to swallow. This is not to discount that they have done field trials. Um, I mean, they have done them. They've done them in a number of over several years. They have done them in a, a number of different fields. They've done them in a relatively scientific manner, but the tests are small. Uh, they are not, they're proprietary. As I said, they haven't been published in any kind of scientific literature. They've mostly been uh, kept to the companies or tendered to the FDA. And therefore, to, excuse me, to the EPA. And therefore, it's it's really hard for anyone outside the industry to have any good sense of what's the risk-benefit calculation here. How much is this really going to benefit the industry versus how much is it going to cause a public health risk that the industry isn't really coming to grips with? Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about that public health risk because, of course, you mentioned it's streptomycin and oxytetracycline. Um, these are antibiotics that are used in humans. These are, <laughs> these are absolutely given to people. Um, so is that something we need to worry about that we're spraying huge fields in Florida with drugs that are given to people? Well, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time immersed in the problem of antibiotic resistance, my answer is obviously yes. And it's weird in a way that this is coming up now because for about the past decade, the, the, Broad public use of antibiotics in agriculture has been a huge public policy question. And in agriculture, livestock agriculture uses the exact same drugs, the same core molecules as we use to 
cure human disease. And so for a decade now in the United States and for longer than that in Europe, the conversation has been, we need to keep these drugs to protect their action and preserve them for human use. But the more we use them in other realms like livestock agriculture, the more bacteria will adapt to them, become resistant, and then the drugs won't work in humans. That public conversation resulted in a broad ban on using antibiotics in livestock in the European Union in 2006. And we got a partial ban in the United States in the first days of 2017 when the Obama administration was leaving office. So given that there's been all that conversation, it's really strange that suddenly crop agriculture has said, we're going to take drugs that are used in humans and we're going to spray them broadly across the environment and allow environmental bacteria to adapt to them in an unpredictable manner, which is exactly what livestock agriculture was doing until public policy changes hauled it back. You know, there's a reason I call you the scary disease lady. You're really not comforting me right now. <laughs> I mean, there, the, the funny thing is, is that we, you know, we have good reason to think that something like this is not a good idea. Now, this, this isn't an, an example that's kind of by analogy. It's just recently been discovered in the past couple of years that in crop agriculture, so in food crops, and also in ornamental agriculture, that's things like flowers, we have been using for decades a set of not antibiotics, but antifungal drugs to control the plant diseases that cause really large percentages of crops to be destroyed after they're harvested, something like 40%, and that also harm the productivity of the ornamental flower trade, which is very large in certain countries. Those fungal, antifungal compounds turn out to be the exact same core molecules, again, as antifungal drugs used in humans. And it's just recently been discovered that in spraying fungicides, broadly in crop agriculture, we accidentally whomped up the resistance of a fungal infection that in people with compromised immune systems causes really, really grave infections and death. It's an, an infection called aspergillosis. And a, that particular class of antifungal drugs that is used uh, uh, broadly in agriculture, the azoles, turn out to cause azole resistance in the clinic. So this is this has just been unrolled in the past couple of years, and it's in agriculture. And why agriculture never thought, oh, look, we made this mistake with the fungicides. Are we going to make the same mistake with the biocides? Uh, that conversation just doesn't seem to have happened. Why? Why do you think that is? Are people just that panicked about citrus greening? greening? Do they think? For some reason, it, it won't happen to them. Why do you, this seems, you know, on its face, this seems like a conversation you'd want to have. <laughs> so I do think, again, as we talked about a minute ago, I really do think there's a high level of panic in the citrus industry, uh, particularly in Florida. You know, California to this point has mostly been safe from citrus greening. It has been found in a few places, but those few places were backyard trees. They are not in the production areas. And in the, the spots where those backyard trees were found, those areas have been quarantined. So California is looking very nervously at the advance of citrus greening, but they're not in the situation yet that Florida's in. So first, I think Florida is legitimately panicked. The second is that almost everything 
that has occurred with regard to antibiotic resistance, whether it's in medicine, in livestock agriculture, or in crop agriculture, has been a sort of unintended consequence of something that was meant to have a good result, right? We, we overuse antibiotics in hospitals in an attempt to cure infections, and what we get is antibiotic resistance in the organisms that flourish in hospitals. We overuse antibiotics in crop agriculture, because, excuse me, in livestock agriculture, because we're trying to increase animals' growth and protect them against diseases, and what we get is resistance in bacteria that move through the environment and become human infections. And it takes looking beyond sort of literally the edge of your field to, to, to think about the, the thing you are doing that seems so important for maintaining your livelihood might be a risk to someone else down the road. Right. It's hard to be generous when your own crop of oranges is 90% infected. Exactly. <laughs> Um, is there any hope? I know, um, you know, if we all know one thing about, you know, fruit trees, it's that we know that we breed them and we breed them extensively. Um, for we breed them, we graft them, um, we do all sorts of things to kind of get the traits we want. Is there any hope for breeding a resistant orange tree? So I do think that's something that the industry is hoping for. And, you know, that, of course, is a it's largely a project of academic science. Um, breeding trees and testing them to see if they they breed true and they produce well and so forth, that is a project of many years. Um, you know, if, if the, the very first invasion by citrus greening was roughly 20 years ago, it, it took about 10 years for the citrus industry to understand really what it was facing, that this, these were not random infections, but this was a sustained assault against their livelihood. And so from that point, people started to look around and say, what are the other options? Are, are there multiple treatments we can try? Are there biological controls we can try? And is it possible to breed a resistant tree? Well, you know, it takes a certain number of years to, to crossbreed trees and to graft trees and to, to grow up trees in test plots. So we might get a, a, a Wang Long Bing resistant citrus tree. But it's not out of the test plots yet, and it might not be for another five to ten years. And of course, this bacterium is also spread by an insect, the psyllid with a P. Um, it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of how Lyme disease is spread by ticks. You know, like getting bit by a tick is not necessarily bad unless it's a Lyme disease tick. Um, is there any hope of, I don't know, fighting the psyllids? <laughs> Well, one of the, the things that some academic scientists are trying is, is figuring out a biological control for the psyllid. And that would be something like another insect that attacks the psyllid. Again, this is something that you know, requires a fair amount of testing uh, and, and further testing to be sure that there isn't some unintended consequence in the in analogically the same kind of unintended consequence we're talking about with antibiotic deployment and antibiotic resistance. Right, because we all know what happened when cane toads were introduced to Australia. There we go. We've been down that road. <laughs> well, Marin, thank you so much for being here and talking us through the dangers to our OJ. <laughs> thank you for letting me geek out about antibiotics once again. For links to Marin's articles and more information on citrus greening, head to scienceforthepeople.ca. But don't do that yet! Stay tuned, because we're going to talk to Anne Simon, one of the scientists who's trying to fight citrus greening, no antibiotics required. 
Welcome back. I'm Bethany Brookshire. We've heard a bit about citrus greening basics and why we can't just pound trees with antibiotics and expect it to work. But what could work exactly? Well, that's a little more complicated. Here to tell us about the latest ideas in fighting the citrus scourge is Anne Simon, who studies plant viruses at the University of Maryland. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Bethany. It's wonderful to be here. I was reading a National Academy of Sciences report on citrus greening, which I will have linked on the website for all our lucky nerds in the show notes. Um, citrus greening was known first as Wanglongbing, which actually translates directly from Chinese as yellow dragon disease, which is kind of awesome. And it didn't arrive in America until 2005. But since then, it has, of course, devastated the citrus crops in Florida. What do we know about its history? Where is it from? <laughs> So the history is actually very interesting. Um, there is a paper that was published uh, way back in the 1920s. And it was a paper from a, a group in India. And they described the insect that carries the, the disease, um, these little tiny insects called psyllids. Psyllid with a P. Psyllid <laughs> with a P. That's, that's right. You have to learn how to spell that one. <laughs> And it describes them in, in a lot of detail, and it talks about the poison that they carry, that they can carry, and how this poison causes these symptoms on trees, um, leading to deformed fruit and then the death of the tree. So this is the first time in the literature that we see what, what sounds like citrus greening. And they talk about this disease as being in India and being in, in uh, other parts of Asia. So it clearly um, came up in the last century, probably the early last century, uh, in China and spread into India, and uh, and then from then is uh, spreading all over. And is it the so the psyllid is from Asia, and the psyllid carries a bacteria which then infects the tree. Um, how did it? How did it get here? <laughs> Ah, yes. So how did it get everywhere outside of Asia? And for that, we have to thank probably the U.S. Postal Service and other postal services. Oh, poor mail guys. Yeah, I know. And the so the thing about um, citrus is that it's very easy to graft. So you can take a piece of a tree and graft it onto another citrus tree. And it'll take, and then everything that sprouts out of this graft, this like piece of a branch, will be from that that graft that you that you gave it. And so, knowing this, um, people like having a little piece of a tree in the, that was in their backyard. When I was growing up in Southern California, we had these wonderful citrus trees. And so, if I moved to a different state, I would think, gee, wouldn't it be nice if I had a little piece of home? Why doesn't somebody send me a little piece of the old tree? And that way I can graft it onto this new tree that I have in my backyard. And the oranges that I get will be identical to the oranges that I got when I was growing up. And therein lies the problem. Because people send pieces of these trees in the mail. And in fact, the first tree that was found in California, in Southern California, to have citrus greening had 28 grafts on it. Oof. Now, you so mentioned that the first monograph or paper on citrus greening was actually published in the 1920s in India. Um, it seems like it's a relatively recent evolutionary phenomena in that it only 
came up in the past, you know, 100 years or so. But clearly, people in Asia have been fighting this for longer than we have in the in North America. How do they fight citrus screening? What do they do? So in China, they've been moving their citrus groves further and further north. And right now, they're at the very edge of where you can actually grow citrus. So the disease has followed the new groves, and it's been impossible to keep out. What they're doing there is they're actually building enormous greenhouses, really what are screen houses because it's warm temperatures, and they're trying to grow the trees inside these screenhouses. Uh, but what people have found who are trying this is that it's still very difficult to keep the insect out, even if you use reduced pressure and double doors. And in Florida, where they're trying this, you know, it takes a hurricane. There goes your greenhouse. Or when you're picking the fruit and, and people are going in and out and the insect gets in. So that's the, that's... What they're trying is is to grow everything, you know, more indoors to try to keep the insect out. And it also, it, it struck me, it was kind of sad to me when I was reading the National Academy's report, is that one of the things that's, that's kind of held back um, citrus greening research in North America is the fact that many of the researchers and farmers here can't read Chinese. Um, they've been doing all this research there trying to fight this, building greenhouses. They've been publishing that research, but if you can't read Chinese. <laughs> that is a problem. Um, people have been doing research on this. They, they, there's really at a, at a recent meeting, um, international meeting, uh, there were, oh, there must have been almost 700 people there. And this was, um, this included scientists and growers and regulatory people. Um, so many people are working on this disease all over the world. It's just, it's nearly impossible to study. You can't, so, so there's so many aspects of this disease that make it difficult. Um, one aspect is the bacteria that causes it. You can't culture this bacteria. So by culturing, I mean growing it in a laboratory setting where you can then test things on it to see whether or not you can come up with agents that will kill the bacteria. But if you can't grow the bacteria, it makes it very, very difficult. So that's one aspect of how difficult this is. And then the fact that the bacteria is in such a tiny amount in the tree, it's almost impossible to find. So you don't know that the tree is infected for years. And meanwhile, the psyllids can land and pick it up and go to other places because they know the tree's infected, but we don't. So this is this has just become this this incredibly difficult disease that's literally threatening citrus all over the globe. And you um, study plant viruses, but you actually didn't really start studying citrus greening until recently. What kind of turned you onto it? So like most people, certainly most people that I talk to here in Maryland, um, I, I, I had heard, actually, I had heard of a disease called citrus screening, but I didn't know what caused it. I didn't really know anything about it. And I had no idea how severe it was. So I was pretty much in the dark, like most people are on it. And um, what I, people like me who studied plant viruses were always looking for 
um, new viruses that are related to the viruses that we study. So we check out the databases where people put in sequences of their viruses. And we found something in the database. And this, we found this enigmatic little infectious agent, the, the sequence of the genome of it. It's, it's a single strand of RNA, like an awful lot of viruses. Um, but it seemed incomplete. It was missing virtually everything that a virus needs to be a virus. So it was of interest to us, and it was called citrus yellow vein associated virus. And we, uh, we were fascinated by it. We, and we called up the people who had actually put it in the database and they started telling us about this, this little thing that, that had come up in the 1950s in Southern California. And they didn't really know what it was. They just realized that it was this little piece of RNA and it, it makes no sense because it's like a virus, but not a virus. And they were unable to study it, but we thought, well, we'll study it. And so we just started studying it, but because it was so different from a virus, we didn't think it would have the properties of a virus. Um, so for example, so just as an explanation, there are certain things that plant viruses have to be able to do to be a virus. They have to be able to replicate and produce baby viruses. They have to be able to move in a plant. And so they have special proteins that they, that, that they produce from their genome that allow them to move through a plant. These are essential. There isn't a single plant virus on the planet that doesn't have these. And then they have to have a way of suppressing the immune system of the plant. Yes, plants have an immune system. And viruses have to be able to suppress it, so they have special proteins for that. And and so all of this makes a virus. Well, this little thing was so enigmatic. It doesn't have any proteins that allow it to move or spread, and it doesn't have any proteins that suppress the immune system of the plant. So it couldn't be a virus all by itself. It had to have something helping it, but but what could that be? We, we didn't know. So we started just studying it because it was related to our viruses. And then we found the most astonishing finding of my entire career. We found that it was able to move in a plant. And it's moving without these proteins that's unheard of. 30 years of research saying that these proteins are absolutely essential and they're not. <laughs> And so the fact that it was able to move all by itself um, got me talking to one of my colleagues about it. And he said, you know, you have something that could be used against citrus greening. And I said, citrus greening? You know, why, what's that? So I went back to my computer. I looked it up and it was like the most exciting time of my career. I thought we might be able to use this against citrus greening because it can move. It's completely symptomless. It infects all citrus. Um, it's um, small. It's easy to work with. It causes absolutely no symptoms on virtually all citrus. And uh, it's really easy to get into citrus by grafting. And I thought this could be a vehicle to deliver things into citrus. Um, it's it only moves in the tissue that the bacteria live in. And it accumulates to huge levels, enormous levels in this tissue. So it sounded absolutely perfect. It was the what I thought might be the missing link 
in citrus greening uh, research. So to to be clear, citrus greening the disease is caused by a bacteria that is carried by an insect. You're actually looking at a tiny little scrap of RNA that is not citrus greening disease. It is a definitely not tiny so scrap the, of RNA. So what happens is, is the insect, the psyllid, um, it carries this bacteria. And for the, for the insect, it loves this bacteria. The bacteria does something really good for the insect. We don't quite understand what it is, but it goes throughout the insect. And so the, the insect naturally wants its, ba- the baby insects, the nymphs to have this bacteria as well. But it's unable to transmit it directly to its little progeny. So what it does instead is it injects it into the tree, the, into the, uh, the, um, veins of the tree when it's eating the sap of the tree. That's what the insects eat. And at the same time, it deposits eggs. And then the, the little babies hatch. I guess you could say they hatch. And right there is the bacteria and they start feeding on the tree. And they suck up the bacteria, and then they become adults, and they fly off to infect other trees. So it, the bacteria isn't really a tree bacteria. It's really an insect bacteria. And the life that it spends in the tree, it barely replicates. It, it, it's, you know, it could be completely harmless to the tree. The tree, however, has other ideas. The tree thinks it's under some sort of monstrous attack. And it starts this huge series of events that leads to the tree death. So it literally kills itself off. So in a way, is, is like, is, is citrus greening kind of like a citrus tree having a massive allergic reaction to a bacteria? Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's like that. It's like, um, it's, it's kind of an, like an autoimmune disease almost. You can think of it where the tree is just desperately trying to produce everything it can against this bacteria. And what it produces is a substance, it's a, a polysaccharide, so sugars, um, called callose. And it clogs up its veins with this callose. So it injects all this callose into its veins, this poor tree. Meanwhile, what happens is, is that if the veins aren't clear, you can't take the sugars from where they're produced to where they're needed and so the sugars start, the sugars, which the, the tree uses for energy, um, can't go up and down the tree and the roots start dying and the young, the young tissue starts dying and the fruit doesn't get the sugar. So the fruit's all funny and bitter. And, and eventually because the roots die off, the tree dies. So if the tree wouldn't do this, <laughs> if we could just say bad tree, don't tree, kill stop yourself. hitting yourself. Why are you hitting stop yourself? Kill- the tree could probably coexist with this bacteria and be perfectly fine. So what we have to do then to combat this disease, we have to find a way to keep the tree from killing itself, um, which we could do if it wouldn't recognize that it was even infected by bacteria. If it would stop recognizing this, then then it wouldn't um, start this massive program to kill itself off. And... uh, and so that would be a start. So the way to try to combat this disease is to produce antibiotics inside the veins of the tree. So you really need to go right in the veins. And you need to produce substances to keep the tree from 
from, you know, <laughs> from starting this massive let's kill myself off program. And then you want to try to target the insects. So right now what, what, what Florida and other citrus um, producing areas are doing is they're spraying for the insect and you're spraying and spraying and countries like Brazil are spraying weekly. And these are pretty, you know, unfriendly um, insecticides that they're spraying and, uh, and it's barely controlling the insect. So we have to try to get away from this. And the, you know, the holy grail would be if we could produce substances inside the veins of the trees that would kill the bacteria, that would kill the insect, and that would keep the tree from clogging up its veins. And so that's what needs to be done. So how do you get these substances into the veins of trees? Tree veins are really tiny. And so what, what people have been thinking is, well, let's, let's use needles. Let's inject things into trees. And there's actual companies that are. I did actually picture like a giant syringe. Like, yeah, stuck in a they've tree. got all these syringes that they're injecting into trees or they're using. Wait, that's lace. actually a thing. There are syringes. Honestly, there are companies where <laughs> you see all the syringes going into the trees. That's amazing. So, yes. Yes. So, so, <laughs> or they're trying to use lasers to to um again create holes in the trees where you could get stuff into them the problem is is that this also lets in pathogens and citrus trees are under so much pressure from pathogens there are so many different diseases it's like when this one came up it was just one more disease of citrus and now, of course, it's the worst disease of citrus. But citru- there's so many citrus pathogens around that it seems like the last thing you want to do is create lots of holes that let pathogens in. So, so I was thinking, you know, you, you were saying, oh, we need to get things into the tree that, you know, deliver antibiotics. And I was thinking, well, you know, if this is kind of a citrus is kind of dying because it's producing this huge allergic reaction to a bacteria like maybe you could just tamp down the orange tree's immune system but that seems like it's not a not an option well you could do it in a more specific way usually plants have a very specific interaction with their pathogen and so they have to recognize the pathogen so if you could just keep them from recognizing this particular bacteria then probably the trees would be okay. The The problem comes from, are you keeping them from recognizing all bacteria? Because then are you letting them maybe become susceptible to bacteria that they're not susceptible to right now? And that wouldn't be good. But since this disease is killing all the trees, it's almost like, well, we can't think about that right now. We really have to concentrate on keeping these trees alive. And if things happen in the future, well, it's not worse. It can't be worse than what the citrus growers are facing right now, which is the death of all of their trees. Now, I wanted to come back a little bit to that small RNA scrap that you found. Yes. Um, So you found this tiny little scrap of RNA. um, And and how so you're going to you're, you're trying to kind of figure out what it does and is the goal to make this RNA carry antibiotics? 
That's exactly what the goal is. The goal is, so this is just a little RNA, and RNAs are blueprints for proteins. And this little thing, which we call an independent mobile RNA or iRNA, kind of like iPhone, <laughs> iRNA for short, um, it only specifies two proteins, which it uses to replicate itself. So most plant viruses have at least four or five proteins, at least. This has just two. And so it's just kind of a replicating unit. It just goes around replicating itself. And that's pretty much it. That's kind so of the original goal of life when you think about yeah, it. Just go around well, replicating yourself. It's probably a very, very ancient pre-virus. You know, viruses probably started out as just little units that could replicate themselves. And after that, they gained additional pieces of, of RNA, additional blueprints to produce other proteins, which would then allow them to spread easier or be or be vectored by insects. So this can't be picked up by an insect. There's no coat protein. So viruses are surrounded by a protein coat to keep them safe. This has no coat protein. And so it can't be picked up by any insect. Um, and which makes it very safe because once it gets into a tree, once we introduce it into a tree, that's it. It can't go anywhere else. It's stuck. Uh, and hopefully what we can do is get it to then, in, in addition to making these replicating proteins, get it to make an additional protein and, or, and, or, you know, get it to make little snippets of its genome that we can use to target the insect. So what this is called interfering RNA. And it's a very well known, um, plant defense mechanism. And what we do is it's kind of like uh, CRISPR, where you you use a bacterial defense mechanism to do things because you understand how it works. Well, we're using the plant defense mechanism because we understand how it works to tell us which little snippet of RNA to add to our little independent mobile RNA. And, uh, and hopefully then it can produce this little snippet, which we can use to target the insect and also target the genome of the tree to get it to stop recognizing this bacteria and stop clogging its veins, you know, bad tree. And so that's, that's literally the goal is can we find places on this little independent mobile RNA that allows us to add things to it. And this is very complicated. <laughs> this is always the complicated thing because it didn't evolve to have places in it for things to be added. We have to find where things can be tolerated. And this is what we're doing, is, is trying to figure out where in this small RNA we can add things and it still replicates, it's still happy, it still does what it needs to do, it still moves through the phloem of plants, but it can also produce new, new substances. And since this is a brand new type of infectious agent, no one's ever studied anything like this before. We've had to try to understand it first. So it's taking us a little bit of time, but we're working so hard on it. So there's 
<laughs> all of these things are RNAs with an I somewhere either in front of it or behind it. So you're working with the independent mobile RNA, which is your little scrap of infectious RNA. And you'd like to use that independent mobile RNA to carry interfering RNAs, <laughs> which are RNAIs, as, as I think how they're usually abbreviated. And you mentioned that those can kind of attack the bugs. How how does the interfering RNA do that? What does it do? So the way that it attacks is, is, is how it's used by the plant naturally as a defense mechanism. So it's a little piece of RNA that can stick to things that come into its, its, its cell. So these little RNAs, um, what they do is when they attach to an RNA, and it's very specific attachment. Then this leads to a scissors that's present in the cell to cut it. So if you have a little RNA to, let's say, a virus that can stick to a virus, then these scissors, these natural scissors that are present in the, in the cell, it's a protein scissors, comes and cuts the virus in two, the viral RNA in two, and then you have no more virus. So for the insect, what it is, is you produce the little RNA and insects surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, have a very similar immune system to the plant, very different from our immune system of, of uh, you know, higher animals. And so if we can produce a small RNA that will target, let's say, a gene that's necessary for the insect to fly, then the insect won't be able to fly. And if so, it can't fly, it can't move from tree to tree. So I'm thinking it sounds it sounds a little bit like when you get bubblegum in your hair and they have to cut both the bubblegum and the hair out because you can't just get the, rid of the bubblegum? Is an RNAi like the bubblegum in your hair where you just have to like cut out all of it? Well, it's what it, it is, is it's, it's, if you imagine, just imagine a, a one foot piece of string and now imagine a little tiny one inch piece of string that can attach to it at a very specific place. And now you've got two pieces of string right next to each other in one place. The scissors recognizes that and it literally chops it in two. So it's more chopping something in two. And once you chop something in two, it can't work anymore. The string's in two pieces. If it needed to work as one piece, it can't do it anymore. And now it's in two pieces and voila, no more virus. So, so. That's how the plant naturally protects itself against viruses. And this is why vi plant viruses have to produce a protein that stops all of that from happening because otherwise they can't attack the, uh, the plant. So the way we're using it is we have our, our infectious RNA. We're trying to add the little piece of string. This, if, if you think of the genome of a, of this little RNA as, as, you know, as, as a piece of string, we're trying to figure out where in this piece of string we can attach another little piece. And the string still does everything it's supposed to do. It still has the right structure. It still can produce the proteins we need it to produce. It's still happy. Um, but now it's got an extra piece of string hanging onto it. And, so this is, this is complicated. I mean, you could almost think about it like if you think of a complicated piece of machinery, like, like an engine of a car and, and you don't really understand the engine very well, but you ask, where in this engine can I put a crowbar? 
you know, where can I just stick a crowbar into this engine? And the engine still works. It still does everything an engine's supposed to do. But now it's got a crowbar attached to it. I was going to say that sounds like a very difficult um, proposition. It's very difficult (laughs) because first you have to say, okay, well, let me try to understand this engine. Hmm, what are these pistons here? I wonder what they're doing. And and what's this belt over here? Oh, well, maybe it doesn't really need that belt. Maybe we can stick the crowbar right into the belt. Oops. You need the belt. Okay, well, it doesn't work now. <laughs> so literally, you have to try to understand what you're dealing with and then figure out where are places that it really doesn't kind of need. They're just kind of there, kind of maybe placeholders between two things that are really important, but you don't want them that close to each other. So maybe there's a little place in between, you know, keeping them apart. And maybe you can stick a crow wrench right in there. So that's, that's how this is very, very complicated. And the problem with the citrus is this, this is the way to do it. The way to do it is to use an infectious agent that will move in the same tissue as the bacteria and deliver agents. And right now there is only one. There's only one virus, you know, because this is what viruses do that can do this. And this is this virus, Citrus tristeza virus. So this is different from your little scrap of RNA. Very different. In fact, mine is probably the smallest infectious. It's not really a virus, but it's the smallest like pre-virus um, Citrus tristeza is the world's largest virus that infects plants. So it's the exact opposite. It's enormous. And being enormous makes it difficult to understand, but it produces a huge number of proteins. I don't remember exactly how many, but uh, it's, you know, probably 12 to 15 proteins, something like that. And so what the Citrus tristeza people who are working on that what they're doing is they're trying to, to remove a pro- they have to figure out which of these proteins the virus doesn't need. Our, our little thing only has two proteins. It really needs those. But, but they think, well, maybe citrus tristeza virus has something extra, some extra proteins that it doesn't really need. We can take one of those out and put in, in its place, the information for producing a protein that we want. And that's what they did with citrus tristeza virus. But there are some real problems with citrus tristeza virus um, in that it's a major pathogen of citrus. Yes, I, I actually, so I looked this up and citrus tristeza virus is a disease of citrus. It's, um, a, it's the world's biggest problem. So they're trying to <laughs> use it to, to solve the other world's biggest problem. <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of people working on trying to solve the problem of citrus tristeza virus. But so why are they able to use it in this way or trying to use it, develop it into a vehicle to deliver things into the veins of trees? And the answer is because there are mild varieties of it. So there is a mild version of citrus tristeza virus, which really doesn't cause much symptoms. And it's pretty prevalent in Florida. It's kind of in most trees already because it really isn't causing much of a problem. And so because it's so mild, they thought, well, why don't we use it? Because, you know, it's already here and it doesn't really cause much disease. So we can use it to add things to. And they've been successful. They found a place. The virus doesn't seem to mind that it's carrying something different. It's almost like you take an arm off 
of a person and you graft something that almost looks like an arm onto it or something like that. And, and the person goes, well, I can manage without that arm. Okay. And it's not really that heavy. So I can still walk and run and do stuff. And, and so the virus is like, yeah, okay. I'm okay with this. Um, and so they're very, very close to having permission to be able to release this citrus gestasa virus in Florida, um, carrying something which hopefully will help the trees there. Yeah, but you can actually, I, I was looking this up, you can get permits um, for well, it's taken them 10 years. Yeah, for experimental it. testing. It's not it's not a full Oh, a full thing. You can get you can get permits for kind of experimental small batch testing of citrus tristeza. Well, yes, and especially in Florida where it's already there anyway. The problem is the mild version of the virus in Florida is very severe on California citrus trees. And it's very severe on lots of citrus trees all over the world. Which means that what they're developing for use in Florida cannot be used in California. And that's a big problem because Florida trees are all infected and half of them are dead. Well, and and thank you so much for lending your expertise and uh, fingers crossed for your experiments. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. If you'd like to learn more about Anne Simon and her work, we have linked to her site at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review. Reviews really help. Honest, they do. And do you notice how we don't have ads? So wild. No ads. How? Podcast supporters like you. At our website, you can find our Patreon, where you can support our hardworking podcast crew with your monthly donation. So thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>